Hi there, this is Michael Collo, Curious Quant, part of the Connexus podcast series. I'll be speaking with Linda Grinken from part of GAM Systematic Strategies, specifically Cantab. And we're going to be talking a lot about a lot of interesting things across the quant spectrum, from modeling in credit markets to the role of machine learning and uh, different kind of methodologies, to the notion of certainty or uncertainty and how much can we really know about the world. I hope you join us. It's a very, very interesting conversation. Thank you. This is my Colo, the Curious Quant, sitting here for Connexus Financial. And I'm joined here on this very rainy morning by Linda Grudenken. Did I get that right? Almost. Damn it. So close. <laughs> <laughs> From GAM Systematic, Cantab. And um, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. So you were just explaining to me um, a very particular thing, which I, I want to kind of make sure our listeners understand fully, which is um, exactly what is a Cambridgean cold? Is, is, is that so, um, so the Latin name for Cambridge is actually Cantab. And somehow that's led to Cantabrigian being the word for a person from Cambridge. So do you have to be born as a Cambridgian? No, we're an open society. <laughs> a lot of people <laughs> have great. been students. Um, I think it's often used to refer to people who've been students at Cambridge, actually. Oh, I see, I see. Uh, rather than those of us who just happen to live there. So you don't have to have a bicycle or something like that as proof? No, it's not required, but you will probably have a bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. So, um, well, look, welcome, welcome, welcome. And that's why I just jump in because you've got an unbelievable pedigree in terms of your background and how you've come here. And, you know, there's a couple of times when I read um, the backgrounds, academic backgrounds of people, and I have to go and Google exactly which field of math that really is because it's been a while since I've, well, thought about any of that kind of stuff. But but you, you did your PhD in a very particular field of math, didn't you? Yeah, it was uh, quite niche in retrospect. Um, so I, you know, I started with doing physics and then I thought, oh, actually, I, I prefer to understand things from the bottom up. So I'm going to focus on the math underlying the physics a bit more. And then I quite quickly went from applied maths to pure maths and ended up doing a PhD in number theory, which is sort of the purest kind of maths and the most abstract kind of maths that you can do. So I wrote a thesis in arithmetic algebraic geometry, um, which is, uh, yes. <laughs> wow. Say that five times in a row. Uh, not right now, but after a few beers, perhaps. <laughs> that might be slightly hard. I'm sure there's a competition like that as well. But, but today you, you don't find yourself in the uh, academic circles. Well, you do kind of. I mean, you, you work in Cambridge, but um, you kind of more find yourself being applied into the field of various different asset management problems, but, but I suppose the one that we were just chatting about before was about credit and um, this idea of systematic measurement in credit. Yeah. And um, we were about to start disagreeing with something, and then I thought, no, 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 we should keep that <laughs> definitely for the podcast. So, so tell me what systematic means when, when I say systematic credit investment strategy. Like, what, what, How is that different to... Yeah, so I, I make a bit of a distinction to, between um, systematic investment and a quant approach to investing. And this might just be the way I think about it. I don't know how common it is in the industry. Um, but the way I think about quant work is, you know, it enhances an existing investment process, its detailed analysis, its um, technical tools that can help you understand things about securities that you trade. But um, on the other hand, systematic is using those quantitative tools to replace the whole discretionary investment process and build something that is completely different. So it's using 
using building a complete system of making investment decisions for you from start to finish every day. So you know, while, while a quant analyst would focus on building tools that help a trader understand what he's doing, he's still the one doing it. Whereas um, a systematic a systematic strategy maker builds strategies that can trade themselves. You know, the system boots up in the morning. Um, there's lots of checks, of course, so we can have the introspection that we need to satisfy ourselves that every, everything is going according to plan and uh, the investment decisions are as sensible as we've set them up to be. Uh, but this, the process itself, it doesn't need us. Um, it's, it's fully independent from us in that sense. Well, it's very interesting if we let it. <coughs> no, of course, and, and, and we should, right? Because, you know, that's, that's the point of making intelligent systems. But it's interesting how you're completely right. The language kind of lets us down here because I think, I mean, certainly coming at it from a kind of quant perspective, which is a kind of quantitative career, I suppose, primarily in equities, to be fair, um, you, you do skirt this kind of gray area, which is, are you assisting a decision maker with mm -hmm. better information, better mm -hmm. tools, or are you the decision maker? Is the algorithm making the decision? And, and while that seems like a kind of small technicality in conversation, it's, mm -hmm. it's a wealth of difference in yeah. terms of uh, how a firm is set up. It made all the difference to me. I mean, that's how Cantab, the company, stood out very clearly from the quant jobs I was considering in other areas of finance, in banks, in big cities. Um, it's really striking, it's really cool for someone who's quantitatively and technically minded to be part of an investment process where you get to make the decision because you are the quant. That I understand that's, that's not how a lot of other people do it, but there are firms that do that now. No, exactly, and this kind of touches on this whole kind of quantum mental, which I hate that term, I hate that term so much. But this idea of quantum mental, I don't, yeah, if you haven't heard it, please ne I'm not ne sure never think I know of it again. It means. Good, good. Then, then, I, then I shan't <laughs> pollute your mind with it. No, no, I, I joke. But, but there's this idea that, um, as you say, the, his the history of this kind of stuff is that there's a series of shops that probably originated in the 80s, mm -hmm. which basically took the entire investment problem, as you say, and kind of created a structure of how to create better portfolios, more meaningful factor tilts from beginning to end. So data collection, data cleaning, to signal generation, to portfolio construction, to trading. Mm -hmm. And they kind of said, you know, we own that whole process. And then within that process, usually the research team are the ones that are essentially creating the signals and therefore kind of creating the, um, the beating heart of the, the, the investment process. So some of these strategies became very, very successful. And so BGI and some other kind of large global firms were, were built on the back of these things, including Rosenberg and, and other shops as well. And I think what I find really interesting is that then there's this other nearby industries, as you point out, who are trying to use the kind of tools or the kind of learnings from this type of core set of industries to try to augment or, or kind of improve human decision-making, mm -hmm. but still within that constraint set, yeah. that if you think about the world in a particular way as a human being, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and if the machine thinks about it differently, then you've got a problem in some sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, like coming, from it, coming, coming at it from a scientist's point of view, I've always found um, our approach very appealing um, because you know, we make at the end of the day we make we encode rules for investment we encode investment ideas that we think are sensible and then then you know we do a lot of testing on that we don't just you know we don't we don't put anything live without years of of testing and making sure that we've implemented those rules that we've implemented behavior that is sensible um, but then we we don't allow ourselves to interfere because we want to eliminate the human bias. You know, if we backtest a rule that says, "Oh, when credit markets aren't doing so well, we're going to reduce exposure," um, you know, in this particular manner, and then we backtest it and find out, "Oh, actually, that's a good way to go about it." 
If we then go into the market and the strategy is live and we say, ah, actually, you know, today I feel like it should have taken off a bit more, so we're going to just do that, um, then we, we have a portfolio that doesn't really match what, what we thought we were getting, and it certainly doesn't give investors what, you know, what, we, were, what we were telling them they would get. So for us, it's a way to, to check ourselves. You know, we, um, we let the computer trade according to the rule, eliminating any bias that we might want to, you know, and that we might want to re-add that's not part of our process. So, so I suppose in this conversation between human intuition and the kind of amazingness of the human brain and how we're so good at understanding the world, which mm -hmm. I don't really buy into, but um, on the other hand, you've got this kind of, um, kind of more, more pragmatic, okay, we're kind of controlling risk here. I suppose where you are in this conversation is very much uh, this idea that you, know, you have an investment process that you mm -hmm. believe in or that you kind of support, that you've convinced yourself it's the truth and then you're gonna let it go. I suppose well, one question I have for you is when you create that investment process or you're kind of running it, endorsing it, et cetera, does that investment process have to represent a human intuition or can in that investment process be a kind of a <laughs> statistical, um, but very well regarded, well tested and I suppose statistically verified, mm -hmm. but not human intuition based idea? Mm -hmm. Well, I wouldn't say that we make strategies around human intuition, but every strategy that we... Um, that we build has to have a very clear investment hypothesis, and it has to it has to um, so it has to have a philosophy, and has to have an approach that you can put into words, and it needs to make sense in that sense. And then we implement these hypotheses. Um, for example, the hypothesis might be that you want to be invested in credit markets when things are going well, and then. Uh, but you want to take off some risk when the environment is not so great. That's a very clear investment hypothesis, and we quantify that. Um, but, but in that quantification, mm -hmm. do you ever lose track of the... Um, the, the so so the, let, let's, let's follow this idea. So I have a hypothesis that I'm going to do some kind of a market timing, and mm -hmm. I'm going to keep my eye out for a particular um, certain sort of stresses, mm -hmm. liquidity or otherwise kinds of microstructure effects, mm -hmm. for example, that's going to make me think about um, when I should take risk off. And I have to be able to ready to take risk off very quickly if that happens. Mm -hmm. But I might have an array of 100, 150 different indicators that I look at. Mm -hmm. And in any given point in time, in any given day, I don't know which as a human intuition kind of perspective, I don't know which one to look at. Mm -hmm. So at that point, would you release then the machine and say, okay, find me a pattern yeah. in these 150 different things that tells me about when there's going to be a stress. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, as long as you do that well, I, I won't ask for intuition. So you've touched on something that's probably the biggest problem for us. We you know we can build many indicators, um, and especially with the new types of AI, like machine learning methods that are coming out, it's actually becoming possible to test many, many variations of very similar indicators. But the problem we have in finance is actually there's a lot of noise in markets. So the signal-to-noise ratio is, um, is very, very low, and a lot of the techniques that we can use to find the perfect indicator they, they will just lead to overfitting. So um, what we tend to do is actually we don't, we don't run a big analysis of all the many variations of the same indicator that we can find because chances are if we test enough, we will find one that looks fantastic, but we don't want to find the one that got lucky. We want to find one that, um, that encodes the, inf the uh, investment hypothesis well and uh, gives us the best chance of replicating that, that performance in the out-of-sample period. So, um, and it's, it's the easiest thing in the world for 
a uh, for a systematic strategy maker to find a trading rule that would have worked brilliantly in the past. You know, I can sh I can find you a sharp three strategy if um, if I don't insist on it being uh, you know if I just go go via statistical methods. And that's why the investment hypothesis you start with is really important. You if you just start looking for indicators that have worked well in on historical data, you will find them, but they probably won't be any good. And they, they just, because you can't tell if they got, just got lucky or if, they're, if there's really something to it. That's really important for us. Um, I, I completely agree. And I, I think this idea of hypothesis testing has is, is been the cornerstone of empirical work, I mm -hmm. think, in this field. Um, so let me play devil's advocate. Not because I believe my point, but because I want to make it and I kind of want to see what you think about it. So, so there is a kind of argument to say that um, where we are today is a series of discoveries and... Um, I suppose, kind of path-dependent kind of actions. They start in the 90s or even before 80s where people started discovering patterns in historical performance and data, mm -hmm. started finding factors or sorting mechanisms for portfolios, uh, built some stories around those. Some of those stories are successful, some are not. Mm -hmm. But essentially the persistence of these indicators has now become a cornerstone of, for example, uh, literature and um, finance and, and those kind of journals which are talking about asset pricing theory. And they're talking about these kinds of you know, price risk factors. And a lot of the more recent work has kind of taken the body of literature. There's been over two, 300 factors identified over the last 20, 30 years as this kind of field has grown and expanded and so forth. And kind of said, well, a, most of those are not repeatable. Most of those are data artifacts. They all have good stories. And they mm -hmm. all have kind of fundamental intuition. Yeah. But most of it's statistical kind of noise. So th th there is a part of you that kind of wonders whether actually... Um, you know, at the end of the day, if you have statistical validation, that's the kind of thing that mm -hmm. you actually end up yeah. needing, and you can create whatever stories you want to fit that. Exactly. And that's that's why. So first, the order in which you do this matters, and it matters from a statistical point of view. If um, if you just look for you know indicators that have performed well in the past, uh, it's always possible to fit a story to them. We're very very good at that as humans. You know, we can explain. We can explain we're, we're natural pattern finders. We can explain why a particular strategy that we just randomly found to be doing well, we can explain that away. Um, we're, we're, we'll just be able to find a story that can explain it and make it sound like this is a sad, this is not just luck. Um, but we think about this um, we think about this differently. We, we don't because we don't want to do that. Um, if we if we so if we start with the data. We'll just find something that's good uh, without checking if it fits a particular hypothesis, um, then we will be able to find uh, a story around it. So for us, we, do it the, we have to do it the other way around. We have to find an investment hypothesis, and then we use the data to test it. Uh, and that's where the rigor comes in. That, that order is very important um, because it allows you to, to try to find indicators that don't just get lucky. Um, but, but I think this is one of the kind of key, key principles that <clears throat> I still feel like there's a huge disagreement, for example, between data science field and, mm -hmm. and quant, so kind of quantitative-minded yeah, people, right? Ah, but there's a reason for that. A lot of the data science and a lot of the breakthroughs that we've seen in the last couple of years, they, they come from fields where there are clear signals. You know, if you start with the simplest thing, uh, you know, the, the, the problem that every first-year machine learning student has to solve is write something that can recognize hand, handwriting, can, can read handwriting. Um, that's, that's a problem that's solved by, with, um, with you know, sufficient computing power and with the software packages that we now have available for a first year student. They can run that, they can run the underlying code um, very, very quickly. Um, 
But that's because there is a signal in there. We know that handwriting means something. We know that um, a, a specific letter, it'll be one of, you know, it, it'll be one of the letters of the alphabet, um, assuming that you've chosen a piece of handwriting that's, uh, you know, that, that's within the English, the English alphabet. For us, the problem is different in, in financial data. We're not sure there is a signal. There's so much noise. If you look at the markets go up ha roughly half the days, they go down half the days. And amongst all that noise, somewhere we're trying to find signals that are profitable that will go up more than they go down. Um, uh, so it's, it's not always clear at all uh, if, if, um, if there is a signal in the noise. And the, you know, a good systematic strategy is right 55% of the time and only wrong 45% of the time. No, and, and, and I think I, I often kind of remind myself as well that we kind of live in an industry which is kind of, you know, slightly better, a num number of percentage points different to, you know, monkeys throwing darts at dartboards. <laughs> and, and, and therefore, I mean, to be fair, in other scientific fields, the reason that we don't, uh, for example, um, you know, I don't know, pray to the gods for rain, mm -hmm. for example, is because we figured out this thing called meteorology and there's a system. Mm -hmm. But the system is good at forecasting weather. If it was really poor at forecasting weather, we may well go back to... Well, it's, it's reasonably good at uh, forecasting seasons, but it's actually not that great at forecasting weather more than, than a few days in advance. Right? Yeah, yeah, and, and that's, short because the, and that's, that's because the uncertainty that comes in yeah. leads to chaotic system. Um, and that's exactly, that's, that's actually a lot like the, um, the data problems that we have for finance. So, so, so that brings me a really interesting problem. So what do you think is a, an, is a horizon that, that financial markets can be forecasted to? So let me, let me give you the context uh, of that question because mm -hmm, sure. I think it's, because <laughs> you probably have a, a scientific answer, but then hopefully the context will kind of give you what I'm thinking about, which is that, you know, in asset management and asset owner land mm -hmm. and consultant land, there's this kind of a zero to 10 year gap in terms of forecasting horizon possibility. Mm -hmm. There is a species of professionals who try to forecast markets within the zero to one month, mm -hmm. less. There's another species that tries to use information from one to six or even three to say, three to 12, just slightly talk about fundamentals and firms and that kind of stuff. And then there's another species, which is the asset owner or, or generally kind of, you know, let's say more strategists and, mm -hmm. and sort of macro strategists who think about the world from the kind of the one to five mm -hmm. year perspective, but then kind of give up at five years and say, well, that, that's too hard from there onwards. It's kind of not knowable. Uh, and then five to 10 years is a huge gap. Nobody kind of knows what's going to happen. And then we have these things called CMAs that appear suddenly magically at 10 years, which are capital market assumptions, which mm -hmm. gives an average rate of return for all of these assets. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the guesses at best. Um, and so there's this kind of notion of what is knowable mm -hmm. in this kind of system and where does kind of uncertainty for knowability kind of start to mm -hmm. kind of pervade us. And I'm just kind of in this perspective of kind of how far you can see in front of your windshield. Where do you sit? Yeah, sure. Um, so my view on this is, is very statistical. Um, most things are not knowable, but they're knowable with some... You can make assumptions around distributions. You can make assumptions around the uncertainty of your expectation. So for very, very short term, and this is, this is actually an area where you know, new techniques are being a little bit use, um, more useful than in other areas. Like, um, so this, the short term prediction, uh, you can make some predictions of where the market's going to go the next minute with, uh, with a lot more certainty than, than, uh, where, than in the model where you're trying to predict where the market's going to go tomorrow or within the next hour even. So the, uh, the uncertainty scales with, with time to some extent, um, um, but also the microstructure of markets on different time horizon changes. Um, so if you look at daily data versus barley, there's quite a difference in the quality of the data. 
Um, and uh, the, the, the shorter you look, the more and the more market microstructure you're able to use, the more I think you can reduce the uncertainty. But fundamentally, all of the predictions that you make will have a high degree of uncertainty around it. And is that because we don't really understand very well the system that creates it? So it's a little bit, I mean, I was mm -hmm. having a previous conversation about conditional distributions versus mm -hmm. kind of unconditional distributions and this idea that we, in machine learning, for example, we, we take a very specific sliver of conditional outcomes mm -hmm. and then we try and build patterns about it yeah. as if it was kind of unconditional truth. And in fact, it's kind of, a, especially in time series specifically, mm -hmm. there's a sense that we kind of see through a keyhole, if, if not something smaller, and then we try and infer what, what, what everything looks like. Is that true? Um, I guess I, I would say, so looking at it through the, you know, through the random walk lens is, is the approach I found most helpful. So we always treat, uh, you know, we always treat returns over any time horizon as uncertain. Um, but if you, can, if you can find a distribution that, um, that is able to model it to some extent, at least you can quantify the uncertainty. So I, in, the, in that sense, we, mo most, of our, most of us quants and systematic managers think of markets as fundamentally uncertain. It's very, very hard to make predictions with a better than random accuracy. Um, and it's all about finding very small improvements, at least in statistical terms, on, um, on, that, uh, on that uncertainty that we think is just built into markets. Um, so so how, how do you think about then, I suppose, the narrative around financial markets? Mm -hmm. So when you turn on your news stations or um, dedicated CNBC, Bloomberg's and so forth, there's a real sense by which the way that people talk about financial markets, companies and outcomes, this amazing sense of certainty. This is what is going to yeah. happen. That I is mean, what's going to uh, happen. So I always marvel at the sense of certainty. You know, there's a lot of... I think there's so much confidence going around, uh, but to me, it, it all looks like you know we're trying to fight, fit stories to explain the world to us because we're not that comfortable with uh, with a reality that's fundamentally uncertain. Um, so uh, I can see why people want to do that. You know, you want to know, you want to understand why the market moved a certain way, and that's that's possible. To, to me, that's possible in retrospect, and we may be able to find answers in, uh, if we if we do that in retrospect. But to do that going forward is Assuming a certainty that is most likely not 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 right, and I'd much rather have a model that's uncertain but tells me tells me some truths about markets than to have a, de a deterministic model that can't possibly be a match for reality. Because I, I find that in the past, where we've had, let's say, um, not quite failings of the quantitative process, but certainly kind of criticism of quantitative processes, mm -hmm. fully systematic processes, let's call it that. Um, it's been along this line that people have overestimated the level of certainty that these systems or these kind of strategies deliver. Right? Maybe. I don't know. I, I always say, and actually I stole this phrase from my boss, um, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you what's going to happen this, this week in markets. I can tell you what, what happened yesterday, but, um, and I can tell you what, what our models' positions are, what the models expect to happen, but I can't tell you with any certainty what's going to happen tomorrow or this week or this year. Because um, that's not a kind. That's not the kind of statement that systematic managers should make. I think that's not. That's but, not but, our expertise. But it's very interesting. You rarely ever have you hear that statement in a client presentation. Um, and, and and I think that this is. I mean, it's absolutely true. I mean, I completely agree with you. And I think a lot of people who allocate strategies into these portfolios understand mm -hmm. the level of uncertainty mm -hmm. uh, inherently. But often there's a kind of a, a buzz cycle. I'd, I'd say or something like that. That kind of says, look, 
Um, it's just a fundamental truth that such and such a thing will work, mm -hmm. whether that's risk premium strategies or otherwise. Mm -hmm. Sure. And then there's this kind of understanding that every year they have to work because, hey, they're, they're risk premium. So um, you often kind of wonder when you have a negative year and people look back on that and go, no, no, I don't believe in that anymore. Yeah. But it's an equilibrium strategy, right? So, so you, you can say that after 100 years, but you can't say it after one. Well, yeah, that's true. I mean, the, the trouble with, um, with working with statistical methods is that if you, think about, I mean, if you think about the expected returns of a strategy as a distribution, that means you will have down years. You know? Even if you have a sharp or you ex a strategy that you expect to have a sharp of one, um, so roughly equal returns for the, the amount of risk taken, um, that will have down years. They should be less likely than the up years. And over the long term, you should see you know, that sharp of one materialize. But a small sample of uh, having an investment for one year is actually not that likely to always get to guarantee you that. It's not. And that's the, that's the thing. It can't really guarantee you that. Because I think, I think you know, I mean, jumping to this topic just for a second, this is a big topic, but I don't necessarily want to jump <laughs> in here. But this idea of kind of human evaluation of uncertainty. Mm. And that actually, I think one of the, the trickiest parts to what you're seeing at the moment is a wide scale kind of adoption of scientific methods mm -hmm. in some sense to lots of different problem spaces outside of finance. So the AI bandwagon mm -hmm. rolls around to most industries and say, hey, look, you can model your outcomes mm -hmm. using your great data and here's the software to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a kind of a, a really nice, positive way to move these industries forward, but does require those people to understand what a failure rate looks like. Mm -hmm. And in some sense, when that um, bad event comes up, is there anything to do? Like, you know, this idea of kind of, mm -hmm. sure. how do I distinguish between um, the true probability of your strategy being 50-50 versus mm -hmm. um, just a bad bad draw from a random distribution? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, <coughs> that's, that's a hard, that's a very hard problem. And um, I think one of, the, one of the ways that fund managers can help with that is, is certainly with a bit of data transparency to help your investors understand what they're getting by helping them understand the statistical properties of the kind of return streams that you offer. Um, that's one, I think that's one way, but at the end of the day, the, the main thing you can offer is, uh, uh, you know, is, is realized returns that match the distribution that you're, you're promising, in a sense. And, and so when you think about these kind of systematic strategies, let's say in mm -hmm. credit, if we can jump in there for a second, mm -hmm. does it have to match the narratives of people's yeah. expectations around it? So is there a sense by which you can kind of go to a meeting and say, look, here's a, here's a model of the world we're using. A lot of data, mm -hmm. a lot of nonlinear pattern recognition. Um, no, it doesn't really line up with any kind of, you know, previous intuition that you might think about the world. Um, but hey, it works. Or we, we have got good confidence it will work going forward. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, you know, People have turned this kind of idea of black box in the mm -hmm. past, ah, yeah. but they've only turned a black box when it's yeah. failed. It was fine when it exactly. was doing well. It, so, it was, you know, a good box. Yeah. So I don't like the word black box. And actually, what we offer, I don't think that's a black box at all. Um, so I'm never going to go to an investor and say, "Oh, look, I've got this shiny algorithm. I'm not going to tell you how it works, but it's going to make you money. Now, now, can I have some money, please?" Um, instead, what we offer is, you know, a product that has investment objectives. Uh, strategies that follow clear guidelines for how they should adjust their positioning in response to markets and market expectations changing in response to what our indicators think uh, the market's likely most likely to do uh, and that's something you know that's something that that um, 
is a much better check on whether the strategy is doing what you expect it to do. So um, it's a much better check than looking at returns, uh, which at the end of the day are random realizations of uh, of, of uh, distributions. So you can you can try to you can try to check returns, but that's a hard problem, and it's a problem that's unlikely to tell you whether something is wrong before it's too late. So you can monitor returns, uh, often investment over the course of weeks, months, uh, and you can check if the distribution that you're getting or the returns that you're getting, how likely it is that they are actually drawn from the distribution that you, sh you thought you should be getting. But once you've, uh, but if you have that approach, and to me that's kind of the only approach you can take with that data, with that set of data, um, that approach takes a long time to make it certain enough for you that the return isn't what you thought it was. And by that time, it's already kind of too late. But I think it's, it's fascinating, like the way that you talk about returns, not from random distributions, absolutely is familiar, right? Mm -hmm. But equally, there's another part of my brain, <laughs> which is <laughs> sitting here going, well, there's lots of other interpretations as to what a return is. Like it's a piece of candy to some people. It's kind of affirmation of stories. It's, mm -hmm. it's lots of different things that, you know, kind of manifest in in uh, the, the human language or the human kind of storytelling. And, and obviously from a quantitative perspective, there's this notion of the uncertainty of the world and this kind of statistical distribution around it. But for the average citizen, in fact, most people probably even within that world, their um, interaction with this notion of an uncertain world with random distribution draws. Like, for example, how many decisions do we make mm -hmm. in our personal lives based on statistical models? Yeah. And we, I mean, we as humans, we rely on being certain about our decisions, right? Because we don't feel good about it otherwise. Mm. Otherwise, the world would be overwhelming. So it's, I understand it's very disconcerting to have to admit how uncertain everything is. Um, but we think as far as markets are concerned, that's a good model of how the market actually works. However, that makes us feel, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. Um, so I, I wanted to get a touch base with you on, on something else. So let, let's jump back into credit a mm -hmm. bit more. Mm. So with, with credit markets, I mean, okay, so I'm going to confess my ignorance. I know very little. But um, some years ago, I started reading a lot about this kind of liquidity elements for, for credit, specifically mm -hmm. bond, uh, corporate credit. Yeah. Um, and this idea that you know, ETFs started to have more liquidity than the underlying bonds. And that was an interesting observation in terms of where the market going. And I suppose I started thinking about this notion of um, is, is the microstructure of credit and trading credit like substantially different now than it was before in the sense mm -hmm. that what is efficient pricing in some sense or kind of where the liquidity has gone isn't necessarily individual names, but is kind mm -hmm. of the portfolio level mm -hmm. trading. And in that context, how do you think about what kind of strategies might work in this market from a kind of systematic perspective mm -hmm. when you think that there's maybe an underlying change in the microstructure? Um, so I guess just to your first point about liquidity. So for me, liquidity is essential. You know, I look at um, all, of the, all of the strategies I build are data-driven. Uh, and um, the data is only as good as the money that's behind, you know, behind the data. So if we look at a closed price, or if we look at a price that snapped intraday, um, if we take that price from a market that's very, very liquid, where lots and lots of, um, uh, you know, lots of notional is traded on that price, uh, then that gives us a lot of confidence that the price is accurate because you know, dozens or hundreds of people are putting and uh, willing to put through million dollar tickets on that price. So they must agree that this is a fair price. Whereas if you compare that to a market where there's only one or two people trading per, per day, then we can't be so certain that the price actually means what it promises. And that is that you can trade this, this security at that price. 
So for us, um, or, or for me, uh, liquidity is sort of the bread and butter of any systematic strategy that uses a data field to make investment decisions. Um, so in that sense, actually, I, I have a lot of problems with working with corporate bond data sets because they, they often rely on indicative pricing. You know, if you, the, if you, uh, you want to trade a bond, oftentimes the, the indicative pricing is the only thing you have available, and you really only find out if that is actually the price you can trade at if you try to trade it. So you have to run a random uh, or a controlled experiment. Um, whereas there are, and just there, there are there are other markets that that don't have that problem because they have higher liquidity because they have lots of trades going through uh, throughout the day. And it's quite interesting because I think this is where sort of something I started reading about recently, which is kind of uh, the recursive modeling, mm -hmm. you know, learning models. I hate that phrase, learning. Everything is learning. Of course it is because it's data and fitting, whatever. But nonetheless, this idea of kind of interactive models where you know, you, you learn by doing so. The system changes by your actions, essentially. So you kind of make a trade, mm -hmm. the system yeah. changes, you make another trade, you learn something else, et cetera. Incrementally, off you go. Mm -hmm. It's a very different kind of setup than we are used to doing, which is mm -hmm. kind of we take a historical data set and we say, mm -hmm. right, it, it, if we could have traded those prices without impacting the prices or kind of the system, mm -hmm. then this is what we would have done. So therefore, this is a signal that we've kind of mm -hmm. observed there and then we make an evaluation. So we think it's going to continue. But I find it interesting, this, this idea of... Um, a system that you know that with even with your trading volume, you can kind of shift or move or, or mm -hmm. kind of, you know, yeah, impact. Absolutely. And how do you kind of learn about that system? Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's a good question. How do we learn that kind of system? Uh, well, we have to execute trades every day, right? So our system spits out a couple, I think about 200,000 trades on a, on a daily basis. Those are all controlled experiments where we, we get to learn the outcome because we see the cost that, um, that that trade has. That's a very, very powerful data set, actually, that um, you know, if you have a systematic firm that collects that kind of data, they, they sit on a very powerful tool for learning uh, how costs actually work out. Um, and for us, that's meant we can, you know, we're able to build a cost model that can actually truly model the, the expected cost of the trades that we have to do. Yeah, because I, I think that's a, that's a, I mean, it's a fascinating challenge. I remember, um, like, for example, the entry into some Chinese markets, I mm -hmm. think, um, more recently by quant strategies or external mm -hmm. quant strategies. I mean, I think the Chinese have internal domestic quant strategies, I mean, mm -hmm. running for a while. But there's certainly an argument to be made that there's a kind of change in clientele effect in that market, and therefore, will that, will that stuff kind of, you know, continue to work or prevail mm -hmm. or kind of significant changes? Mm -hmm. I mean, again, going back to the credit market, when you're thinking about doing these models, are you thinking about them in context of, regimes that are, are kind of changing? Are you thinking about it just as a continual evolutionary system that you're trying to learn about? Or do you think there's any, anything uh, in between? I guess we don't have a one model approach. We think there, you know, it's a good idea to have several, several models that um, interact with markets on slightly different time horizons and try to capture different ideas because it's not just one. You know, markets don't have a single return driver. They're usually lots of competing forces. There are lots of players with different relevant time horizons with different reaction speeds. And the strategies, different strategies try to pick up different, different sources of return in that sense. Um, so I guess we have we have a we have strategies that try to capture the market environment. Um, so they go they go into credit when they think the board market environment is great and it's all it's all good. 
But um, because we trade such liquid instruments, these strategies are actually able to get out of the way if the market environment changes, especially if it changes very rapidly or if you're entering a very deep, deep credit market drawdown. So that's a strategy that, um, you know, that can be in credit fairly statically for a long time, but then it's able to react really quickly uh, when, the, uh, when the market environment changes. So it's got a fast reaction time. And so what, what doesn't work in credit? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I mean, what does it mean, what doesn't work in credit? That depends on, on, that depends on the kind of strategy that you put on, I guess. Tell me about so, your biggest disappointment then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess uh, so our fund hasn't been live that long. It's been a good first year. So I haven't suffered through a big personal disappointment quite yet. But with uh, a random, you know, with with the uncertainty approach, I know I know drawdowns will come. Uh, I'm not I'm not promising a strategy that will never have a drawdown. Uh, what I can do is, you know, test the strategy, stress test it, uh, have an expectation of what what the biggest drawdown should be over a reasonable time horizon, uh, and I can tell you what it would have done during the global financial crisis. I think that should give you a pretty good idea of how, you know, what the worst case scenario is for the strategy. I, I, I guess what I was thinking about more is from a kind of a research or modeling perspective, mm. you know, when you kind of put ideas on a table and you think, oh. right, here we go, we're going to use this VIX forward <laughs> yield curve indicator, I know this is going to be mm-hmm. it. <laughs> and then you go back to your desk, you do the work, or you have a team do the work, and then uh, come back to the table, uh, you know, a number of days later or weeks later, and uh, look at it, and there's nothing there. Yeah, you just, uh, um, that happens. Um, that's part of any any data driven research process. Um, I've got my I've got some methods for mitigating that because of course I don't want to sink. And but it's, then then it becomes about time management. You know, you don't want to uh, for an idea that may or may not work out. You want to allocate some time uh, to to make to try to make it work. But you have to be willing to to give up an idea. Uh, it's very tempting to think, oh, I've just not found the right implementation for this brilliant investment hypothesis yet. But actually, it's a good test of how likely uh, the idea is to be truly good idea. Because if you have a first prototype and it's a bit crappy, it's a bit rough around the edges, the trade sizes aren't really thought out yet, you just, uh, you just have a r- very rough idea uh, of whether the idea can make money or not. And if that just goes down in a straight line, chances are the idea just isn't that good. Because if you have to... If you have to add on lots of bells and whistles uh, to make a good idea work, then chances are it's actually the bells and whistles that are twisting the idea around until it's actually quite far away from the original hypothesis. And the data scientists would say <laughs> that that's okay, right? So in typical yeah. data science language, that would be kind of, no, 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 we have to fit the functional form to the data. Uh, that's the frequentist approach. So we have a, we have a Bayesian approach and a much more empirical approach, I would say. So we don't... we. Because you can't force the data to match your model. That's not how markets work. The data is the one true realization of markets that you've seen. So I would, I mean, it's a very philosophical question. And there's frequentist versus Bayesian. Um, to, me, to me, if my model doesn't match how markets actually behave, then the model's at fault because the markets, yes. they're never wrong. You know, as, if you have a market right. where you have billion, you know, billion dollar volumes uh, on a daily basis. Well, how can that market be wrong? There, there are literally hundreds of or thousands of people trading in, at these prices. That, that's not wrong in the traditional no, sense and, of wrong. And, and, and I, think, <laughs> I think it's interesting that people kind of humanize the market. They kind of say the market does this, the market does that. Mm-hmm. But in fact, it's kind yeah. of a complex system, as we just described. It mm-hmm. kind of reminds me of a very quick story. <laughs> 
I was sitting in a room in an unnamed organization and uh, we were kind of being given a test. The test was very simple, about 100 people in the room. Everybody pick a random number between 0 and 100. And they will take the average of that number in the room, mm-hmm. halve it, and then whoever gets closest to that number wins. Okay, so everybody knows the rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a recursive problem. Mm-hmm. You basically sit there going, well, if everybody guesses randomly, the average is 50, half of that is 25, so I should guess 25. But everybody guesses 25, so half of that is 12 and a half, and so on, so on, so on. And so obviously, you know, me and a number of other quants sitting in the back, we go, you know, approaching zero, limit zero, mm-hmm. 0.0000, something small. And um, the answer ended up being 14. Mm-hmm. And we were, we were wrong. And we were dead wrong because we were trying to model the kind of empirical problem or the kind of, you know, the, the holistic problem rather than the, the actual information asymmetry problem, which is how many people in the room actually got what the exercise was about mm-hmm. and therefore made their guesses based upon what they got. And in fact, you know, the, our, our job was to forecast in some sense the average information quality in the room mm-hmm. as opposed to what the absolute information quality would, mm-hmm. would result in. I think that's a, that's a great example. You know, people used to be in the in the early days of quant investing, and we had when you heard the first sort of quant-driven hedge funds being set up. Well, a bunch of them got caught out because surprise, the markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay liquid, and that's exactly the kind of hubris that is essential to to avoid. To us, the, the markets may be irrational, but they're not wrong because. Those are the prices that people are trading at. And they, if they want to stay at that level for whatever reason, right. then, uh, then you're wrong and the market's not right. And what I was going to say, and, and that is the system. So in some sense, right or wrong, even not even a concept here, mm-hmm. because this is about you're trying to model a system, I don't know, a cloud formation in mm-hmm. the sky or something. How wrong is a cloud formation? What's well, not wrong? It's, yeah, it's, it's just, a cloud formation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's... it's um, People used to think, and this is how people learned, that markets don't follow normal distributions. Um, you know, people used to think that events that are un- so unlikely they would not, should not occur uh, throughout the time of the universe, actually those, those types of events occur quite frequently, every couple of decades, really. That's right. Um, and that's, um, you know, that, that's because people had hard assumptions about markets that weren't borne out uh, by the data. They assumed that... Returns should be normal, and they're clearly not, um, but they, they didn't realize that until too late. So it's, yeah. I, I, I want to throw a quick spiky question at you, um, and then um, we'll, um, we'll kind of uh, get to the last bit of this. But um, so, so with fixed income markets generally, with credit markets, there is a point of view that says um, that we kind of live in a managed economy. So in other words, we have central bankers or government agencies they're essentially are using interest rates as monetary tools to ensure that we're not facing terrible kind of economic outcomes. And therefore, instruments that are directly impacted by things like interest rate changes or kind of QE, whatever, mm-hmm. are essentially not being priced in a market capitalist kind of way. They're being kind of priced in this you know, conditional way um, mm-hmm. based upon the forecast of, of, sort of central bank actions. In fact, I think a fair amount of um, time has been spent in trying to understand you know, the color of Greenspan's tie as, as to what he's going to do with interest mm. rates and all this kind of weird <laughs> stuff. Um, and obviously in more recent times as well. But when you're thinking about these kinds of models, I mean, you know, that, that type of some sort of um, state variable or kind of shadow or cloud that mm-hmm. hangs over that market, mm-hmm. I mean, how do you think about that? Is that something that kind of is just in the background? It's kind of a longer term on average thing. 
Or is this something that is like an event risk? So every now and then you have to kind of turn off your models and go, okay, here yeah. we go, Fed announcement coming. I mean, I think the answer to all of that is yes. Uh, we, we, we definitely see in the market market structure that there are specific event risks. Um, they're not just around central, central bank announcements. Uh, you can have them on the stock-specific level. Um, you have them for many assets, actually. You know, oil, uh, one of the most freely traded commodities in the world, uh, has just gone through some unexpected event risk, in this case, unannounced. Um, so f to us, that's a feature of almost any market. You know, we, and uh, rates are somewhat managed, but most assets are regulated. You know, oil contracts are regulated. We trade designated uh, futures uh, uh, along. These are, these are very regulated markets. Um, in the sense that they they have specific contract specs, they are only traded on specific exchanges, and um, you know, they they are subject to supply shocks, to event risk, to shocks in demand, to changes in output. Um, so so there there are many markets actually that we trade that I would say are a lot more subject to this kind of thing than than rates. So so therefore, when you when you think about systematic modeling, mm -hmm. are you thinking about a forecasting or kind of understanding a series of events that are kind of happening and mm -hmm. there's a large number of them. So at any given point in time, there could be, you know, 10 on your radar, there could mm -hmm. be 30 yeah. or more. Mm -hmm. Or do you think mm -hmm. about the world as kind of continuous exposure to kind of a factor mm -hmm. or a signal where you maintain a constant level of risk or some kind of constant growth or some kind of sizing mm -hmm. constraint, whatever you're doing. And then you're kind of just riding that that signal forward and you're kind of in a very typical kind of way saying well my IR or my outcome should be XYZ and therefore I can kind of just keep on this exposure I should kind of keep more or less constant exposure to my alpha source but my alpha source is kind of mm -hmm. continuously distributed because it's a it's a it's a factor so it's at all the instruments in my universe have some exposure to this thing and I'm buying some I'm selling some which is the kind of more typical factor driven stuff mm -hmm. um I guess it comes back to how do you model uncertainty. So event risk is just another way that an asset price can can move. Um, you can make specific efforts to mitigate event risk. This is especially relevant in the context of execution, I think. Um, but at the end of the day, this for us, this is just another way of how how do you optimally measure the uncertainty that's uh, that's a part of the markets. Uh, and that you can it's it's an interesting problem it's in, on the event side. Um, but it's just part, it's part of our uncertainty modeling. Okay. No, because it, it, it strikes me that all the kind of classical systematic strategies mm -hmm. and, and to a large degree, the kind of now the smart beta and the ARP and all that kind of world feeds off this idea of the factor driven investment model, which is kind of mean mm -hmm. variance. And so the idea is that any kind of new data sets that are coming in are kind of impacting that, that distribution cross section evenly. And so that's probably one of the kind of barriers of entry for alternative data sets. So mm -hmm. it's, it's wonderful to have airline data, but because it only applies to five stocks, yeah. you're like, well, I can't really scale it across my cross-section, so I can't create efficient portfolios with it. Yeah, I think that's one of the key problems for a lot of the co really cool data sets that are coming out. Um, their relevance for a portfolio um, depends on the coverage that... Mm. Um, that the data set has. So we get very cool sounding data sets and there's, a, you know, there's an exploding marketplace of people who will have accumulated data that may be interesting. Um, but if the data, you know, if, if the data relates to satellite pictures of a specific type of retailer in the US only, then that has a very limited, um, that has very limited coverage for the, the kind of stock universe that, that we trade, just, as, just to give an example. 
Um, similarly for weather, da weather data, something very cool. Um, you can, you know, of course, there there is there are relationships that you can learn between the weather in Brazil and the orange juice price expected uh, in the in the next harvest, in the next couple of harvest months. But that's one market. Um, even if you if you model global weather well, you'll be able to predict some seasonal effects in some in a subset of uh, commodities markets. Uh, very well, so it's um, they are very cool and it's exciting research that we uh, we're not forgetting about. But um, the effort you have to spend on the data sets compared to uh, uh, how much it can pr improve your portfolio uh, as a whole, um, that's the crucial measure that we look at to determine whether data sets are relevant for us. And the number of data sets that are worth the time for engagement is unfortunately kind of small. Coolest data set. Hmm. Stumped you now. Yeah. Um, I think our execution data set, so the, the in-house execution data, maybe it's because I understand it the best, so I don't have to go, you know, I don't have to uh, uh, educate myself on how it works, um, but the execution data we've accumulated over the last couple of decades of research and of trading, uh, trading from our systems, that's actually really exciting to learn from, and that's an area where, um, you know, using the most cutting-edge machine learning tools is becoming surprisingly useful. It's quite interesting, isn't it? This notion of um, where do you get alternative data, whether it's about weather and oil and, I don't know, whatever, where you've got five years of history, but it's all very interesting. You can see the world in a much more complete way. The ability to kind of make consistent returns of it mm -hmm. is entirely based on huge bets of yeah. fairly niche markets. Um, whereas I think a lot of quantitative systematic shops have accumulated data just by being in business for mm -hmm. a number of yeah. decades, whether it's fundamental data, it's trading data and so forth, transaction data, mm -hmm. and, and these are kind of you know, quite amazing data sets. So I've got one final question for you, and then I'm going to um, wrap it up. Um, and this is a question not, I mean, I, I asked all my guests this question, so um, don't think I'm signaling you out, but it's a tricky question. Um, and I suppose this, this is it. So in terms of the development of AI and where you've kind of seen they're going, in broader societal terms, so not necessarily in finance, but in all the different applications from autonomous cars to voice to identification to, to various other things. Um, what do you think in the kind of coming period for our society are some of the bigger kind of opportunities or challenges around AI and AI adoption in a kind of a wider sense? So this is kind of a question about, you know, society plus AI and, and what does that equal? I would say... So it's just my first thought, it's regulation. The people who have the expertise to build AIs and who are just going off and building AIs uh, have no, have, are likely to have the right incentives to want to regulate themselves. But people who are in, in the position of wanting to regulate, they do not have the subject matter expertise and they will not, uh, they're unlikely to gain that expertise themselves for at least two generations. So that's my biggest worry. I think AI is very exciting and it's revolutionizing a lot of areas of our lives already. Um, but the lag of, um, the lag of um, expertise reaching regulators is likely to mean that some things will happen that we rather wish they didn't. It certainly feels like an area that there's a huge amount of exploration going on at the moment. And therefore there is a number of discoveries and, and a whole bunch of other failures that we don't see. Mm -hmm. um, but you're, I think I do share this thought that um, the pace of change of what's possible 
is moving incredibly rapidly. Mm-hmm. And then there's this kind of sense by which some of these things that are possible, we'd rather have a slightly more public discourse about before we kind of scale yeah. it and kind of distribute it. Yeah, and, um, you know, they're, they're, I think a lot of the companies that are involved in building AI tools, and they are aware of some of the problems, so they can't be aware of all of them. And we, I think we can't expect them to always regulate themselves in the manner that, you know, provides the optimal outcome for everyone. Completely agree. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. All right.